Lincolnshire. Non-league radio. The home of live commentary on lower league football in South Lincolnshire. Hello and welcome to the Lincolnshire Non-League Radio podcast sponsored by DWB Timber Engineering and Angels Taxes of Boston. My name is Tom, commentator on the station and this time we are joined by the current Bourntown Assistant Manager. He's also been at Sleaford and Pinchbeck. It's Alan Ross. Firstly, Alan, thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for the invite. Um, I was quite pleased when you messaged me. So um, anything to do to help and to get our profile out there. So thanks, mate. No, uh, as, I, as I said, thank you uh, for coming on. Um, so in this podcast, we'll be talking about Alan's start at Bourne and their aims for the rest of the season, then also his involvement with what you could say the revival of Sleaford Town earlier on in the season, and also his time in the game and other topics surrounding the football world at the moment. So we will start with Bourne. So you've recently become the co or assistant manager at Bourne Town. It was only about a few weeks ago. So what attracted you to go there? To be honest, it was out of the blue. I got a call from um, Steve Wilson, who was the current manager at the time. And the, the pretty much the call was, I need a bit of help, a bit more direction, um, someone with more energy than myself, someone that's got some connections locally, um, somebody with the experience at the level to probably take us forward, I think. He felt that maybe the club had just come to a stalemate, to be honest. Um, at the time, I, I was quite enjoying having a bit of a break from the game, to be honest. Um, and it all happened so quickly. I think I had the call on the Monday, met with the chairman and vice chairman um, on the Tuesday. And I think it was possibly all agreed by the Wednesday. Um, so, and to be honest, it was a quick turnaround. Um, but one, I just felt that the vision of the football club and the structure that they've got in and around the club and the way that it's run, they really sold me the dream. And um, I thought that we, we was the perfect fit. And with Steve actually saying you could come in um, on the same level as me, so rather than being an assistant, you could come in and do your thing and we won't hold you back. That probably got me over the line, to be honest. The fact that I could go in, implement, implement my ideas, some fresh ideas that I've got along with, you know, some of the experience that I've had in relation to winning games and um, trophies previously and try to bring a whole new energy level to the football club because um, we're sat in 19th. I think the club should be doing better than that. And I think everybody agreed around the table that evening that the club should be a lot in a better position than what it is on the pitch. Yeah, I mean, we uh, covered Bourne Time a few times, uh, Bourne Town a few times this season. I think the first game we did them was a 6-1 defeat to Harrowby United and I think we did a game in the FA Vars as well where they also lost but I think I know you lost at Aylstone Park 8-0 the other day but excluding that result I think the football club has come on better in the like the latter ends of last year and I know you weren't at the club then but I'm sure you've uh, heard about some of their results. Yes I have um, I've got a couple of players that I used to coach so Jamie Gort, Roger James Gordon, I know them very well. Um, keep in touch, especially with James. Um, and I speak to his dad on a regular basis. And he was, you know, most Monday mornings that we'll talk, we'll talk football. And he was saying that they're not far off. But one of the major problems that the clubs had this season is the inconsistency of the commitment from the players. 
So they could get a good result against maybe, say, a top four or five team, and then they could lose to a bottom five team purely just because of unavailability. Mm. Um, so that was one of the things that we've had to quickly address with the players. Um, and, you know, the, the rich history of the football club. I remember years ago when I was playing, you'd go to Bourne with the knowledge that you may come away from there losing a game of football. they got a good crowd, um, nice pitch. Um, and that's what we're trying to bring back. So if you like, really, it's trying to bring back the good old days and the feel-good factor of Bourne Town competing week in, week out, rather than, you know, you can't predict up until um, last Saturday, I suppose, you couldn't predict whether Bourne was going to win, lose. Um, it's just so, so indifferent in performance levels and results, which obviously have followed, hence why uh, we're sat in 19th. So you've uh, been there for uh, three games now. So you started off with an 8-0 defeat to Elstone Park, but since then you've beaten St Andrews 3-1, which was uh, last Saturday, of course. And then as we are recording this, uh, last night you drew Harrowby United 0-0. I mean, what do you make of your start so far? The Elstone Park one was, um, how do I put it? The club wanted me to come in quick. Um, that was agreed, and I didn't have a problem with that. I actually had the option of sitting in the stand, but I appreciate this isn't the Premier League. So me sat in the stand, knowing that we're not going to get anything out of that game, wouldn't have helped anybody. So I felt that, like I needed to jump in the in the driving seat, so to speak, and actually see actually how good we are, um, to see how good the players will react. Um, under pressure. We didn't expect to, to lose the game 8-0. Of course we didn't. Um, however, it was good for me to be able to see what sort of characteristics, um, for me to jump in and see what the changing room was like, what the professionalism was like. I'm not going to lie. I've come on here to be honest. You know, I'd say a good 10 out of the 14-man squad had dirty boots. So that, that didn't give me a good start to the club at all. And just having a look around, and I think it was very much a changing room that was run by the players and it was a case of whether they fancied to turn up or not. In their defence, I spoke to them 60, 60 minutes before kickoff, and I felt that maybe they was under pressure, they didn't really know what was going on. Um, is this a new manager coming in and the old manager going out? Absolutely not. And since then, I think you can see in the improvement in the results already, we'd had a training session followed by a great result last week against St Andrews. And it's a good touch time for me to speak to the players and give them the understanding of why I've been appointed to come into the club to improve it and also improve them. Um, and as you said, um, last night we had a, a very good performance against Harrowby. Jamie McGee, as I know, is one of your next guests on the show. Very good footballer, great guy and a good guy that I've always kept in touch with since um, working with him at Boston United on the 23s. They've got a fantastic team, but all of a sudden it's gone from losing 8-0 and falling flat on our face and just silly errors, mistakes all over the park to being a solid team. Um, and that's what I've tried to bring in from my pinch bet base, to be honest. If you're, if you're difficult to beat, you've got half a chance of getting a result week in, week out. And um, yeah, since the 8-0 the drumming that we had, we've reacted really well and picked up four valuable points. I mean, as you... Uh said earlier that Bourne could be maybe classed as a bit inconsistent, inconsistent. I think one part of Bourne, which definitely isn't, there are definitely the times we've done commentary there, 
other fans, especially the younger group of fans who always make a great atmosphere in it there. I mean, surely that's really what non-league football is all about. Yeah, you know what? I'm actually smiling at that because the club never told me that. The club told me that we'll get over 100, but that's actually 100 plus paying um, supporters, so senior people, if you like. I didn't realise it was a good 40 youngsters that come to the ground to actually support their local team. And last night was even better than Saturday. It was great, great atmosphere. And that that gives me chills to know that the football club is a centre of the town, part of the community. And if we can inspire some of those guys to actually put on their boots and play for us in the near future, then that's what it's all about and the sort of club that I want to be at. So it's probably unlikely you'll you will get relegated, but but probably not go up at the same time. I mean, so would you say your aims are to finish as high as you can and then start building for next season? We feel that maybe a couple of more wins should see us safe. Of course, we want to win every game, but we've got to be realistic with some of the fixtures that we've got. Off the top of my head, I know we're we're playing Hucknall and the likes of Belper as well that are probably going to get promoted. Um, there's there's sort of no easy games really. Um, the when I've come in as well, it was at a time where fixtures are thick and fast. We know Harrowby. I'm surprised Harrowby are in the position they are with their um, infrastructure that they've got, management and personnel far superior than what we are. It's it's my aim now to just sort of set some foundations ready for pre-season. So that's making sure the players' mentality is right. They understand that the club actually have a direction and where we want to be in two to three years' time. We want to make sure that we're more professional, we're consistent, the players understand that you've got to be committed. We've got a brand new 4G facility that we train at, but getting too many low numbers, getting the likes of six or seven players turn up to training, and that's costing the club quite a lot of money. So we want to make sure that we're using those facilities um, to our advantage. The chairman's advised that we can train on the pitch any evening as well, so we've got the facilities there. It's just trying to get the mindset of the players right. Um, recruitment between now and I think the next 15 games is going to be key. So we can build as much now leading to pre-season. So, you know, as a manager, there's nothing worse leading into pre-season where you started from scratch. And that's where Steve Wilson had picked up the club this summer, not knowing what division they was going to be in. If I remember right at the start, it looked like they was going to be playing across um, Norfolk and Suffolk. So it was, a, it was um, a difficult sell to try to recruit players. So between now and uh, the end of the season, finish as high as we can, get as many points on the board as we can, improve some of the players that we've got, and also try to introduce one or two of the local players from the reserves, which we're already looking to do next week. So you talk about uh, recruitment. Of course, on Monday it was announced that uh, Tim Coombs had joined the management team, headed up scouts and match analysts. Of course, he signed from Pinchbeck. I mean, uh, surely he'll make a big difference in how you recruit players as well. He will. And um, I actually had a friend that called me and said, what sort of signings that, you know? Uh, what level are you at? And recruitment's key. So what Tim's a good friend of mine. Um, Tim ideally would like to be a coach. I'm not so sure that his 
best attributes would be delivering a coaching session. However, with the technology side of things, it's fantastic. I mean, if you can see where the Pinchbeck social media come from, the imagery and everything, and the background of what we did previously when we worked together was outstanding. So um, a good example of this would be, I've already got a scouting report on Gedling for this week. So I know what formation pretty much that we can go with, who their danger players are, what their strengths are, their weaknesses, um, what their management are like, do they, do they make changes, what's their substitutes like, what their tactics are like. So that gives us a good basis of potentially trying to get the best result for the players and give them the relevant information. On top of this, Tim will be able to go out and yes, people will laugh at us, but he'll record the players that we're looking to recruit. So we'll know actually what they're like, body language, um, their work ethic, do they listen to instructions, are they coachable, uh, are they dynamic? So these are the sort of things that Tim's going to bring to the table. Um, so we make sure we, we sign the right personnel and that's personality as well as what they'll do on and off the football pitch. So that was my first signing. I think it's key and one that I know Tim will, will give his heart and soul for, for the football club, just like he did with me at Pinchbeck. Uh, so moving on away from Bourne now and going to a club where you was at earlier in the season and that was uh, Sleaford Town. So you was there with uh, you was at Sleaford with Tom Ward, who's still there, and you could almost say that you kind of re revived the place. As I think a lot of people do know, they weren't in the best place even at the start of the season. I mean, how would you sum up your time with Sleaford? It was enjoyable because um, Tom just asked me to come and get it off the ground. And his emphasis was very much on playing. So he just needed someone that he could trust on the sideline in training sessions to deliver good training sessions. At the time, it was a case of you can't put seven days in for more than one player at a club within that particular month. So we knew that we identified probably 25 footballers that we'd like to sign, knowing that each week we'd probably only be able to sign one at best. So it was a case of trying to identify those, but what could we do as they, as they drip feed into the squad? And a lot of that was working with some younger players. I really enjoyed that. And Tom sold me the dream really of, can we try to produce another Tom Ward? So I, um, I coached Tom when I was at Sleaford Town Reserves when he was 16 years old. Um, and he's obviously gone on to have a fantastic career. I'd say that he's earned some good money out of playing non-league football uh, and he's a bit of a celebrity in his local area. And I think he's deserved that off his own merit. We all know that his granddad is a massive figurehead within Sleaford in the community. But Tom's had a fantastic playing career. My time was fantastic there. I think the difference between sort of the Bourne proposition and the Sleaford proposition is Sleaford needed points on the board to survive. The club was in dire straits. The chairman had come in and tried to back it the best that he could. I don't think at the time he had a, um, just an endless pot of money. So it was how can we create an environment where we're potentially going to pick up points. We did that. Um, the difference is we had to sign footballers that was going to produce and get us points quickly. And that's where I sort of left it with Tom, where the proposition for Bourne is we don't have so many good players. We don't have the option of signing um, the, the likes of Mitch Griffiths. So we're going to have to try to develop players. Um, and that's the only reason really for me not being there, really. It's just the different style of proposition. And what makes me tick is coaching and making players better, where I think the good players you just need to listen to. 
and they'll just take on board and necessarily match tactics to how to win a game. But with the not so good players, you're improving them as well as making them tactically astute. Uh, at this level of football, there are uh, quite a few player managers, of course, Tom Ward being one, Jamie McGee, who we've got on the podcast next week, being another. I mean, you've worked under a player manager in Tom Ward, of course. I mean, as an assistant manager, when you are an assistant manager under a player manager, do you feel a little bit more responsible for the team or do you feel more responsibility as a whole? It, to me, it doesn't make a difference. Because if, if Tom or any other manager that you'd be assisting, whether they're on the sideline with you or whether they're on the pitch doesn't make a difference to your dynamics of how you approach the game. Um, if Tom would have been stood with me, my instructions to the team would be exactly the same whether Tom was playing or not. Our agreement was Tom needs to concentrate on the football. I'll concentrate on everything off the pitch to the best of my ability. So that means the players understanding that. That also means how we deliver pre-match talks to the players. And of course, at halftime, who's going to be that main figurehead? But we had a good understanding as well at halftime of listening to one another from a player's perspective and also from somebody that's on the sideline and assessing the game as a whole and then trying to give out the best information at halftime. And then, of course, you need good communication because... You're talking day in, day out. Tom, to be honest, is absolutely on the ball. He lives and breathes football. I thought I was obsessed, but to be honest, he's probably another level, uh, another level than me, constantly thinking how we can improve. We had numerous um, FaceTime calls of tactically, what can we do better? Which players can do a different role? Um, so my time with Tom was good because he's obviously worked under the likes of Ian Culverhouse and some fantastic managers as well. But not only that, he brings his own experience to the team, but I had the full responsibility, to be honest, which, which was also good because that's how, as an individual, I like to work, knowing that you're not going to be undermined if, if you've been put in place as part of a team. So uh, when you and Tom went into Sleaford, they were near the bottom of the table. I mean, they've come, on, come a long way massively in the last few months. And if they keep it up, I think they can probably at least finish high mid-table. I mean, do you think they are capable to maybe challenge for promotion next year? From speaking to the chairman at length, definitely, I know that's their ambition. Can Tom do that? Can, can he lead them to the league title? 100% he can. I think from being in the position where I was at, at Pinchbeck and finished fourth, and I think... It was, if I remember right, it was Daventry, Rugby Town and Deeping that finished above us that particular season. Daventry had strength in depth and they had probably step three players playing at step five. So the chairman, to be honest, has got to dig deep to make sure that you just don't get step five footballers. I'm talking lads that can play on any surface, can play in sun, wind, snow, rain, um, and be able to play against other elements of maybe the facilities are not as good as what they're used to playing at because Sleaford deserve to be playing in the in the fourth tier of the of the pyramid, playing along the likes of sort of Whiz Beach and Stanford. Um, and I'm sure they'll get there. And Tom's definitely the right guy from a professionalism point of view and the changing room perspective. He's got it on point. I just 
the, the chairman, which I know at the time when I was working with him, was desperate to get sponsorship in and try to get into the community and building the juniors and trying to get a great reputation. And I also know that you've probably seen, Tom, that the crowds um, at the time, I think the assist, sorry, the vice chairman said to me, before we went in, I think it was on average 32 people per game. And when I left, I think it was averaging sort of 164. Yeah. So they've got the backing. And I know against Boston Town, there was a fantastic figure on um, December the 28th, wasn't there? So they, they, they've got the numbers in the town to, to back the team as long as they're successful. So to answer the question, Tom's the right man, and I'm sure they'll be in and around promotion next season. I mean, also, the, as you said about the attendances going up, I mean, especially against Boston Town. I mean, being a Boston Town fan, I mean, I'm probably going to be a little bit biased here, but I was uh, quite disappointed that they lost 3-1 on Bank Holiday Tuesday. But the atmosphere when Sleaford scored those three goals, quick succession, was absolutely fantastic. I'm sure you agree that uh, the club is going in certainly the right direction. It, it really is, because... A lot of those Sleaford fans go to watch Lincoln City. And with Lincoln City, I know that they've got plans to ex extend their stadium within the next sort of three to four years. In the meantime, if you can't get a ticket for Lincoln City, you have no other option. So that's where that will work for Sleaford as well. And while Sleaford are playing well, and I think the other thing that Sleaford fans want is to see not only good faces out there, but a team that will challenge game in, game out. And that's what Tom's got. He's got fighters. He's got, as you know, the likes of Smithy, Joe Smith, um, Charlie Ward. He's got some good players there that have even played for Boston Town. Um, Carl Watkins, that are all grafters, will give 100%. They'll play with with knocks, bruises, cut heads. They'll give it their all. And... Um, it's, it's, it's just a nice place to go and watch a football match as well. I think that's the key. And even the lady like Jenny that runs the tea bar, she's been there for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So as a husband. So if the chairman and the vice chairman can get that culture, which they are doing, um, it's just a great place to actually go and watch a game, a game of football. So uh, moving away from Sleaford now and going to your football career as a whole. So let's go back all the way to the beginning. How did you get into football? Um, good question. Um, I, I used to love watching Nottingham Forest, even though now I'm, I'm an Aston Villa fan, I must say. Um, it was the era of Brian Clough, so I used to go to watch Nottingham Forest quite a lot. Um, I lived in a place called Clifton in Nottingham, which is renowned for developing footballers. And I so happened to join Clifton All Whites as a junior. So got into football massively. That's all we had. To be honest, as a kid living on the Clifton estate, all you needed was a football. And I loved football. As I came from secondary school, I managed to get a trial with Boston United's um, Football Academy. So I moved over to Boston in 1999. Um, ended up playing for the academy and captaining the team. And um, that was the era when the football club had won the Dr. Martins and then went into the conference under Steve Evans. At that time, um, I wasn't as good as what I would have wanted to have been, to be honest. I don't think I was ever um, going to go on and play at a fantastic level. Um, I played in the team with Anthony Elding. And really, I suppose I, I had a knee injury that I'd always had as a kid. And it always used to niggle me, but I could always play through games. And really, 
it's Chris Cook's fault that I'm in coaching because he was my inspiration and a massive influence on my life and putting on the training sessions and the coaching sessions I, I just loved it so I took a keen interest into coaching and from Boston I went and played for Hull Beach Hull Beach went and won the league so I didn't get many appearances as, as I would have liked under Dick Creasy at the time but learned lots through Dick Creasy the likes of Nick Keeble Sean Keeble um the sort of likes of Mark Melson, Steve Appleby, so lots of good footballers at the time at Hull Beach. I ended up playing um, at um, Horncastle, where we won the County Cup and did really well there. And that's when I started to do more coaching as I couldn't play on. That was, I was sort of 21, 22 at the time. And then took um, the coaching and management position at Sleaford Reserves with my good friend, Glenn Madison, Chris Cook's brother. And we went from there to the first team, and then I had a break uh, due to work and came back into it with Boston United under 14s with Martin Bunce. So that was the team, you'll know Harry Lim, of course, yeah. who's playing for your team now and banging in goals left, right and centre. Uh, the likes of Harry Vince as well. Yeah. Um, out of that team, there's a couple of good lads as well that you may know of Jack Keeble that's played um, in and around sort of Whiz Beach level and a bit higher. So I had a really good time there. Um, also went to Boston United under 23s um, with Martin Bunce and Dennis Green. Didn't really enjoy that there. That wasn't an, an enjoy, um, a real enjoyable time, to be honest. Um, however, um, I then went back to Horncastle through the pandemic just to help those out at the time. And the pandemic just killed football, to be honest, and especially the more local level of football, because it was just a case of games was on, not on. You could cancel games. Um, and then went with with Tom Ward at Sleaford, and now I'm at Bourne. So you said you uh, grew grew up watching Nottingham Forest, but now you uh, support Aston Villa. I mean, what made you make the switch between the two clubs? I think you know when you're a kid, and everyone's sort of a, a glory supporter. So no, I think was it would it be '92 or '94? I can't remember the FA Cup final when Spurs beat um, Forest and Des Walker scored an own goal, and lots of my friends went to support Spurs. And you know, you're just young and naive at the time, and Forest wasn't really winning much apart from sort of the uh, is it the Anglo-Saxon Cup or something like that, and not, nothing much. And Brian Clough sort of moved on. And to be honest, I watched Aston Villa, I watched Daley and Atkinson, Dean Saunders. Tony Daly and then young Dwight York, Mark Bosnich. And I just, I just loved the way that Aston Villa were, the energy that they had, the style of football. And I've stuck with them. And, you know, in the next four to five years, hopefully people won't give me so much stick when Stevie G wins as the Premier League. <laughs> so um, you've been in football for quite a while now. I mean, what would you say your best moment in football is so far? Good question. And you know what? I was I was waffling on and I totally forgot to obviously mention my time at Pinchbeck, which obviously I didn't mean to, to miss out. I'd say the time at Pinchbeck was the best time in football in one aspect because um, we went from step seven. I think they'd finished at, uh, seventh in the division um, with Ian Dunn at the time. Um, we got them to, I think we finished third in the first season and won a cup, got into um a final of another, lost on penalties. Um, then we got the club promoted to the UCL Division One, which was, to be honest, was a bit a bit of a fluke. But we got a real good team around us, and the atmosphere at the football club was absolutely bouncing. 
Um, I, I'd say my greatest achievement was winning the UCL one. Um, we played 32 games and only lost two. I think we went on something like a 27 unbeaten match run, which was some sort of record at the time. And we scored so many goals. And I think we went sort of 14 games without conceding a goal. And it was just, I'd, I'd say at that time, it was a case, it was raw football. It was just good lads, fully committed to the cause, giving everything, the chairman giving everything. Um, we built up from sort of one man and their dog to having sort of 80 to 90 people per game coming to watch Little Pinch Bet. We moved from um, the Step 7 to playing at Spalding United's ground, getting them into the FA Vars. And if you probably my best moment was getting the club into the FA Cup, because that was something you yeah. wouldn't have ever dreamed of getting a Step 7 team you know, within two years into the FA Cup. So that was a, a, a proud moment for me. So as a player, um, what would you, who would you say is the best player you've played against? Best player I've played against? Well, um, it's a good question. You put me on the spot. As me playing as well? Yeah, yeah, as you, as a player. Uh, I definitely, I'd say uh, Mickey Nuttall absolutely bossed me, bullied me, bossed me. And I came off there and probably didn't want to play football ever again. <laughs> uh, so um, has there ever been any other clubs uh, you've uh, been in charge of or managed or been assistant manager? Um, well, I'd like to mention Boston United under 14s. I took them from 14s, 15s and 16s. And that's where really I learned my trade because it was a case of developing young players into young men. Um, and that's where I really, I, I felt the love for the sport of trying to be more of an influencer and trying to sell the dream to players of, you're not going to make the Premier League, but you can be a good person and you can be the best player and the best version of you each time you, you, you play and you train. I love that because at the time we'd be training at um, RF Cranwell, just between Sleaford and Newark, Tuesdays, Thursdays, absolutely freezing cold on a sandy AstroTurf. We just had a bag of balls the wind every single week and nothing else. But we had a right laugh. Um, you know, it was a case of me picking up all the players, having a car full of young lads, growing up and developing and the conversations got more stronger and I had to close my ears by the time there was 15, 16. <laughs> but it, I'd say that was um, a fantastic time, to be honest, because um, you see people grow, grow into young men. I, I love my time. I love my time there. Um, and also I coached the Lincolnshire County squad for quite a while with a chap called Dave Wilkinson. Mm. Um, that was also really good because I managed to get my 10 appearances for the county myself. So it was crazy, really, um, being captain of the county team as a youngster and then going back and coaching with them. I really enjoyed that experience as well. Um, that was a good, a good experience of dealing with players and trying to sell them the dream there and then bearing in mind you don't work with them on a weekly basis and try to win games of football and get the best out of them when, you know, we, we played all over the country. So that was also a good time of my career. So we're going to move on now to something I know which you've been affected by and I've seen it happen right in front of me as well. And it seems to have got in, it, it seemed to have increased quite a, a lot over the last few years as well in every level of football you can probably think of. 
So back in October 2020, you went to watch your old club, Pinchbeck United, play, and you were the victim of uh, racial abuse. So as I said, I've seen it happen in front of my own eyes at a Boston United game a few years ago. But to have it directly said to you, it must be a completely different picture. It probably is, yeah. Um, it's it's also, you know, when you're not sort of prepared for something, um, you always know in the back of your mind that um, the, these sort of things happen, they go on. Um, and you're sort of always on standby, but you're never quite prepared when um, that sort of thing happens to you. And um, you never know how to necessarily manage a situation at the time. And I'd say when that had happened, um, for once, I've probably in one aspect, reacted to the best that I could without breaking the law, even though um, you run through so many emotions and at the same time, you probably think that violence is the best way to solve that issue at the time. But to walk away, um, I was quite proud of myself at the same time. Um, it was a horrible time and it um, actually, um, it had only the matter had only just been concluded last November, actually. So it was sort of not only just the the event, it was the, the knock-on effect um, for me and my family and close friends, um, which went on for over a year. So, yeah, not, not a polite position to be in. So you did report it to the police. And, of course, as you said, in November, I think the man was eventually charged. I mean, would you say that more could have been done there and then when it happened? Yeah, so just to explain myself, because I did quite a lot of um, interviews with lots of different sources and, and media and so on. Um, but this is probably uh, another opportunity for me to just actually explain how it all works. So the police actually said there's nothing that they could do when I reported the incident. So I walked out of the stadium, reported it, and they, I um, was interviewed and they said, there's nothing we can do. Sergeant said, there's nothing we can do. It's just a civil matter. So that's sort of when I took to Twitter and you can probably look back through my Twitter. I'm not on social media that often. I'm sort of more of a private person. Um, took to Twitter in just anger. Um, and it was only when it was reported on BBC Lincolnshire Radio is when one of the chief of Lincolnshire police had then contacted me to say, is this true, what you're saying, that we can't help you? And I said, yes, and actually it wasn't reported at all from the police officer, so there was no record. So that was disappointing to know that it's everything was happening. Black Lives is, is prominent um, with everything, with um, what was going on in America. Um, taking the knee in the in the Premier League, so everything was happening. The, the the protest was happening in London, but yet you report something and the police don't even record it. In fact, they just say, "Ever so sorry, there's nothing that you can do. Just go on and live your life." So the experience of actually reporting it wasn't very good at all. And then there's lots of comings and goings for, for sort of three or four months where you'd hear something, then you wouldn't hear anything, and it was. You know, the amount of interviews that I had to have was just taxing, to be honest, to the point where I just wished that I'd never said anything at the time. Um, but the, the likes of um, Troy Townsend that had given me a call and said, I understand your pain by being silent and not saying anything, but the right thing to do is to, is to sort of follow this through, um, which I did, but it was painful, Tom. 
the actual process of reporting a racial incident is probably worse than actually being racially abused. Yeah, I can imagine. And of course, for the last 18 months or so, players have been taking the knee against racial abuse in the Premier League or in the EFL. But of course, now some players have stopped doing it. I mean, lots of people have different opinions on taking the knee. But what do you think of it as a whole? Taking the knee, I was at Old Trafford watching Aston Villa and Man United a couple of weeks ago in the FA Cup. Um, I hadn't been to a live game in such a long time and they took the knee before the game and I'd say pretty much everybody in the stadium clapped and cheered. Where we didn't have that, did we, initially when we were taking the knee. And there's a lot of people that didn't, didn't understand uh, Colin Kaepernick and how he invented taking the knee. Um, and anybody that is listening to this, go and um, watch the Colin Kaepernick on Netflix. It's not all about racism at, at all, but it just shows you a bit of a story. Um, and there's also some good YouTube clips of him and some of the interviews that he's taken. So taking the knee, I think, is valuable because now it's something that's in people's faces. It's almost like, you, you, you know, we're in January now and you're trying to probably be on a health kit. You're trying to eat healthy and not drink so much, try to exercise more. But become March, April and May, it's totally forgotten about. And I think from being a mixed race person myself is the way that racial injustice is, we don't want to just raise the profile and then just stop it completely. There's, you know, there's lots going on in society, in sport, as well as in cricket, which is something that has just come out um, today, I, I believe. Um, so it's happening all around the place and in and around us in society. But taking the knee for me is just a constant reminder that it's happening in society. And also from um, when you're in the, in the stands, at a Premier League or um, a professional game of football, I think it's just a quick reminder of that it's not acceptable to racially uh, abuse a footballer or any other fans, or whether it's homophobic or anything else, any other style of abuse. So I think it's it's a fantastic thing that players can do, which takes, what is it, about 10 seconds. That's yeah. all. Um, one of my questions I asked the Lincolnshire FA was why don't we do it at grassroots level? Yeah, exactly. You know, if it was a case of doing it at Boston Town last week against Newark, I think both sets of players would have felt more comfortable um, with a diverse management team, players, as I know Boston Town uh, is, is have ethnic minorities within the football club. I just think it gives everybody a sense of um, security, knowing that, uh, it's a quick reminder of if you say something in jest, it's not going to be acceptable. So it just might make somebody think um, twice before they say something that they shouldn't. I think it should be at grassroots. I think it should be um, at all kids level of football, whether it's mini kickers all the way through sevens, eights, nines, tens and so on. I think every level of football, you should take the knee for that 10 seconds just to continue and the good word and the hard fights which people have taken to try to make people aware that it happens on a daily basis. And it's not it's not a subject on either that you're going to go to the pub and, and and raise with someone because it's not a topic that everyone's comfortable to speak about. And I'm not I'm meaning that by you speaking to me about it, but actually speak to some of your friends about it. Yeah. It's an uncomfortable conversation. 
So we have to keep that awareness up now and we've got to follow through, but it's okay at the top level, but there's nothing being done at our level. And um, if this happens at Boston Town FC on Saturday, what do you do? How do you report it? How does a manager report it? How does a player go to a referee? How are they believed? What's the protocol? The yeah. fact is, we don't know. We don't know. Um, and that's where I genuinely believe that the FA are letting the sport down. Uh, out of interest, um, of course, a lot of if, so if a player gets racially abused on the pitch by a fan, they do have the rights to walk off the pitch in protest or the whole team can. I mean, you could arguably say by walking off the pitch, you're letting the, the fan who's racially abused the player win uh, and instead by um, staying on, you will show strength. But I guess it's debatable either way. What do you think? It's almost like me saying, I'm racially abused and someone saying, Alan, you're using the race card. Yeah. Exactly the same as what you're saying. You can't win. If if it happens to me with Bourne, and I'll be honest, when I was at Horncastle, just helping friends out, I went to, to manage Horncastle, just it was a local club. Um, I needed to get in a headspace where I could just go do my bit of coaching, get out of the house and just regroup. And I was often thinking, if this happens again, but it's me in charge, what would I do? Um, I, I believe that clubs don't know how to act either. Um, if you, if you, I suppose to try to answer the question would be, if we're at a game and a player is racially abused by someone in the crowd, how do you manage that person to get to evict them out of the stadium? Is it everybody else? that sort of clubs together? Did they do a citizen's arrest? Did they all pick that particular person up and throw them over the fence? And we continue with the game. And then that particular player that's been abused can, can feel that the crowd are with that particular player. Um, is there a backlash with other people that don't understand racism? Will they have a backlash of the players walk off and there's no understanding? Do they get booed? Do they get jeered? Do they not appreciate? Do they want a refund? Because the game's been abandoned. Um, the clubs replay that game. Um, are they fully investigated? We don't know. And this is also why you'll find that there's a lot of people that's been racially abused that won't won't go back into this beautiful game yeah. because there's so much uncertainty. And I think there's a lot around the FA at local level that are um, completely disinterested. And I know that because I've offered my my assistance with the Links FA. So me coming onto a podcast and saying that I have to have evidence to back myself up and I've got to send emails to prove that, say, I can give you some sort of advice on maybe we can set up a plan. Could we be the first county FA? And I know there's some in and around the Bristol region, I believe, where the FAs are taking this really seriously and trying to put protocols in place. But we don't know. Your head would be a shed if you heard racial abuse and not meaning you directly, Tom, but what would the typical person watching a step six, seven game do or step five game do if they heard a player be racially abused? What would they do? Possibly ignore it. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I guess it, 
just depends i mean i was looking uh, researching before i did this um this podcast uh before we start before we came on that the race the racial incident what you had at pinchbeck i mean i believe it was a 66 year old man what got charged yes that's right i mean i guess it really does depend it, i mean as a younger generation myself i mean i'm only 17 i mean when i saw the racist abuse what Jonathan Wafula got in an FA Cup game at Boston United when I was only 14 I mean I guess it that it kind of means more the race the racism thing as a whole as it's happened a lot more in my generation I mean when you're looking at a 66 year old man I mean I'm not giving him excuses and he shouldn't have done it all he shouldn't have done it at all I mean nobody should do it but I guess back when he was my age watching football it was not a wrong thing to do if you can understand what I'm trying to say. I don't understand what you're saying. I think it was the wrong thing to do, but there wasn't strong enough people to stand up. Yeah. And I so happened to see one of my good friends, if you like, just to describe him. He's white. He wears a baseball cap. He wears any clothes that he wants. And he doesn't care what people think. The fact is that he's... His family are very, very wealthy, um, very well educated, university degrees. He's a lawyer. And I went to see him in London and we so happened to go for a bike ride. Before you know it, we decided we'll go to the to the protest in London. And you have to go to something like this to understand as well from someone like myself, from a, a mixed background, is that you can't feel sorry for yourself for the colour of your skin which I know that that's how I used to think when I was a kid um, and you just ex expect to go to a game to hear it against the likes of Cyril Regis or John Barnes you'd expect to hear it Jason Lee had it even when he's playing for Forest so it was what you would class as the norm but not everybody liked to hear it but it's also childish for the fact that fully grown men just follow the crowd. I mean, I saw it at Man United, where the, I think it was against Leeds, and the Leeds fans was calling, you know, the, the, the black lads that had missed the penalties for, for England. And I'm like, grow up. You, you know what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I just think um, it's a cowardly way that if that, the only thing that you've got in your lock is to racially abuse someone, other than come up with something better than that, then it, it's it's a it's a crying shame. But the fact is, it's happening more and more as as we speak. And I thought Gareth Southgate did a fantastic thing of integrating all the players. England played some fantastic stuff in the Euros. We got to the finals. The country had come together. But we always knew when the Black Lads was missing the penalties. We knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a shame, it's society. But when I was at the riots, seeing so many different people of all walks of life. So I've got my friend that's a lawyer. Um, we've got other people that are unemployed, homeless people, people that are university um, delegates, business people. Uh, it it was such a joy, and I came away from there feeling so much better about myself, knowing that not everybody looks at someone and worries about their colour, feels threatened by someone of colour, or puts them in a category. 
So there is a lot of good people out there in this world. And following my racial abuse, it was a year of hell with dealing with the police and the courts wanting to take it further. And then obviously the whole going to court and trying to and being grilled. And it was even like, you know, the, the, the defence lawyer, some of the questions that they was asking was just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, will racism go away? No. But I just don't want to see it at football. Exactly. I mean, football is what, right, as you as you say, I mean, football, it, it shouldn't happen in football. It shouldn't happen in any sport, to be honest. But especially now, fans haven't been in stadiums for so long. I mean, over what, at least over a year. I mean, they've only just come back in August. I mean, some grounds like in Wales, I've had them... Uh, I've had fans removed again for the last month and they've just come back in. But of course, the older generation of fans doing racist chants. I mean, what impact is that having on the younger generation of fans like me or just a bit older or just a bit younger? I mean, they're not setting a right example. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with that. They're not. Um, and either you're going to follow in their footsteps. So a young Tom Carter is going to follow in their footsteps and continue the trend or you're going to battle against them which is probably unlikely so you probably end up not going to watch a game of football because you feel that you don't want to be in that environment to hear that that slur against players mm. so what happens is eventually it becomes a hostile environment Bearing in mind, this is against some of their own players as well, remember. This isn't home and away fans and having a go at the opposition. This is against their own players. So you probably end up not going to football, which means less revenue for the football club with the media and things that you're doing now. I wanted to support your show today because it's great that we're just recycling. And that's why I'm in football coaching, to recycle, hoping that I can influence somebody else to so then become the next manager the next coach but there's going to be so many of the younger generation that just don't bother um and we know that we're losing out on football games you know when i moved to boston in 1999 i'm sure there was about four or five um football leagues on a sunday morning we don't have one what will happen less and less youngsters will go to football games and that will then that that will just completely ruin our game long term um, on the flip side of it you go and watch more non-league football but unless we get the protocols in non-league you know there'd be nothing better than you know an extra 200 people not going to watch Lincoln Peterborough Forest and co coming to watch Boston Town Boston Town need that revenue and the players would appreciate and the management would appreciate that support um, but you're not also safe at non-league level No, I mean, this is, I think as a whole, I mean, conversations like what we've been having for about the last 20 minutes, I mean, it's not what you like having, but I can probably guarantee you, and I think in um, you'll probably agree with me with this, that we'll probably still be having the exact same conversations in 10, 15 years' time. I mean, as you say, racism is never going to go away, but when you've got players, like, as you say, fans being racist towards the 
own players. I mean, like England, for example, when you got Sterling and Rashford. I mean, it shouldn't happen to any players, but Sterling and Rashford, for example, players who have done so much on and off the on and off the pitch in the last few years. I mean, it's just really, it's really not good enough. It's unbelievable. I'd say over the pandemic, there's one thing that I learned and hopefully that my children learn is that footballers that get branded as being, you know, the showboaty style people, always on Instagram showing that they live the best life. Marcus Rashford is a true professional. Let, let's, let's, that's not under debate for me. You can't say that he's not. His work ethic since coming on the scene, I, I remember his debut, if I remember right, he scored a couple against Arsenal. And the lad has devoted his life to football. How brave was he to say, I had no money as a youngster. My mum devoted uh, heart and soul to me to give me the best opportunity in life. So that inspires me as, as, um, as a parent. That then should inspire my children to be the best that they can be and do good for the world. And Marcus not only played well for England over the years and for his club, he saved the country. Yeah. I signed that petition. I know hundreds of hundreds of people that signed his petition um, to feed youngsters. His book that he's brought out, his social media presence that he does, the work in his community. I mean, normally I'm the sort of guy that sits in the pub, have a few drinks, and normally we're discussing footballers. They don't do this. Oh, why don't they? Why don't they give a percentage of their wages? Why don't they do this? Marcus Rashford did. Marcus Rashford has done more for this country than any of the government ever has that I can ever recall. He yeah. did more in the pandemic than what Boris Johnson did. He went right direct to the people that needed, needed meals. He went direct and he made it happen. Now, whether you're a Man City supporter, Liverpool supporter, is completely irrelevant. He was a man of the people. He's done well for the country. And then he just gets slaughtered like that. But that's hypocritical people. Um, and I'd like to have thought, you know, I'm touching 40. I'd like to think of gone, gone of the days where, as a young black man, you'd feel worried that you can't meet a certain girl and meet their parents because of the colour of your skin. But unfortunately, we're still in that era. And as you say, Tom, we'll be in that era when I've got grandchildren. It was, it, if I have a grandson, it's still going to be the same. How will her parents react to the colour of my grandson's skin? That's how it is. It's such a shame, but that's the way of the world. I mean, one more question on this subject and we'll uh, move on. I mean, uh, what more can be done to stop it? I mean, should kids my age or whatever age, like universities, secondary schools, primary schools, should they be being taught more about it? Uh, should there be more like lifetime bans from stadiums or even jail sentences? I mean, what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, there, sh there should be. But as I said, when I reported my incident, it wasn't taken seriously. And if it wouldn't have got any media coverage and retweets and, and likes, and that's why I also had to follow through because of the amount of love that I got from obviously people that I didn't know. My phone was blowing up and I spoke to so many other people, um, which is confidential, but so many other people reached out and said, I've gone through the same, but I just not reported it. I don't think I've got the strength to follow through. And I spoke to, um, I'd say probably 50 individual messages and I've spoke to about 30 individual people I've never met before that have gone through racial abuse and just don't know what to do. Um, confused. Um, the emotional impact of 
any style of abuse, to be honest, but I know we're talking specifically on racial abuse, it's damning. It's also hurtful when your children see that you're being hurt and then that I, you can probably see they're thinking, I'm going to be going through this. And that has been abused, not because he's done something wrong or because his team's beat another team. It's just been abused because of the colour of his skin. I've never done anything to that guy. The fact is I had it for so many years as well from the same um, particular person. And, you know, he was a supporter. Um, and, you know, it's a case of having to put up with it. But I think unless there's, there's stronger enforcement, but there won't be, because I think the police and the government just react um, as to say that they've reacted. But we're, we're, we're not in any better place than we was two years ago with the whole racism thing. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a shame. I mean, I, I completely agree with every word you've said. I mean, we'll end the racism talk now, but I'd, I'd just like to say uh, thank you for coming on and speaking about a subject well, I know which is quite close to your heart or which is quite close to you over the last two years. I mean, I really appreciate it. I mean, I think you deserve a lot of credit for what you've been through and coming on. I know you've been on other podcasts as well or interviews and having the guts to speak out about it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. No, thank you, Tom. And now I don't want to be a preacher about it. I just want people to to be aware and probably just think twice and to to the good people out there that don't see people any different because of their religion or the colour of their skin. Um, there's a lot of good people out there in the world. There's just a small minority like with anything. They always try to spoil the party. But, you know, hopefully personality will shine stronger than um, the horrible people out there that are, are cowards, in my opinion. Yeah, as I said, uh, thank you for coming on and talking about that uh, subject. But we are going to move on to a more uh, positive uh, thing now, uh, to something which has been added to the podcast over the last few weeks, and that is the football pub quiz. So are you up for taking it on, Alan? Yeah, come on then, let's have a laugh. So there's uh, 10 questions, uh, five on Lincolnshire football and then five on football general knowledge. As a whole, uh, the high score so far was actually set last week from Martin Bond from Deep in Rangers, who got eight out of ten in two minutes. There is, there will be a leaderboard on Twitter as well. We've had three people take part. You are the fourth person to do it. And there is a uh, time just in case some people get the same score. And you can pass on the question, but you won't get any points for it or won't be able to go back to it. So I'm ready when you are. I'm ready. So all you really need to do is uh, I'll say the questions and you say the answer back to me. So I'll uh, start the timer now. So question one, which team plays at Dickens Road? Harrowby United. Question two. Gary Edgley is the manager of which club? Boston Town. Question three. What is the nickname of Whole Beach United? The Tigers. Question four. Jones D'Souza plays for which club? Boston Town. Question five. Which team plays at the Vertigo Stadium? Skegness Town. 
question six to ten or is on football general knowledge. Question six, which team is currently bottom of the Premier League? Norwich City. Question seven, Anthony Martial has joined which Spanish club on loan from Manchester United? Seville. Question eight, which team is currently second in the championship, Blackburn Rovers or AFC Bournemouth? Bournemouth. Question nine, which league do Shrewsbury Town play in? One, League One. And question 10, the last question, what is the nickname of Grimsby Town? The Mariners. So you answered those questions in one minute and 35, and that is actually our fastest score so far, but will you be at the top of the leaderboard with the amount of points you scored? So... Uh, I think I got two wrong. I think, I think uh, Norwich are not bottom now, are they? Uh, we'll go through it in a minute. Uh, uh, question one, which team plays at Dickens Road? You said Harrowby United, which is correct. Question two, Gary Edley is manager of which club? That's Boston Town. You said that. That is correct. Question three. What is the nickname of Hull Beach United? The answer, Tigers. That's correct. Question four. Jones D'Souza plays for which club? You said Boston Town. The answer is, in fact, Deacon Rangers. It is. I thought that. Uh, question five. Which team plays at the Vertigo Stadium? Yeah, you said Skegness, which is right. Question six, which team is currently bottom of the Premier League? You said Norwich. The answer is Burnley. Of course, Norwich have won their last two games. So could they potentially stay up? Uh, question seven, Anthony Martial has joined which Spanish club on loan from Manchester United? The answer was Seville, which you said. Question eight, which team is currently second in the championship, Blackburn Rovers or AFC Bournemouth? You said Bournemouth, the answer, the, the answer is Blackburn Rovers. Question nine, which league does Shrewsbury Town play in? The answer is League One, which you said. And question 10, Nick Grimsby Town, what is the nickname? The answer, the Mariners, which you also said, which does bring you to a final total of seven out of 10, which isn't bad. You are joint second on the leaderboard, so... That's not a bad score. It's not bad. I could have, yeah. I, I knew Blackburn as well. I'd watched the championship at the weekend. Should have done, but and D'Souza, he's a good player, actually. I can't, yeah, but you never know. Seven's not too bad, is it, mate? It's not too bad. It's good. It's uh, really good. So, uh, once again, uh, thank you, Alan, for coming on the podcast. Any final words? No, no, it's a pleasure. And um, I've obviously been listening to some of the commentary. So, Tom, I'm always here for if I can ever support you in any shape or form and keep up the good work, especially representing non-league football in Lincolnshire. And hopefully I'll invite you and um, you and the team to a game at Bourne anytime you like. Thank you. I mean, uh, as I said, thank you for your support and thank you for coming on. We do have some upcoming uh, commentaries to tell you about on Lincolnshire Non-League Radio on uh, Saturday the 6th of February, or no, Saturday the 5th of February. I do believe we'll be at uh, Wibberton as they play their Lincolnshire Junior Cup semi-final against Limestone Rangers. And plus we will have some more commentaries in February to tell you about and they will all be confirmed on Twitter. So once again, thank you to Alan for joining me on this week's podcast. Next week, I'll be joined by Harrowby United manager, Jamie McGee. But until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.